It's a Minefield is an audio exploration produced by us, people who ride the waves of mental and emotional distress. Our expertise comes from our lived experience, and these are the stories you'll hear, along with those who are on the journey with us. The roller coaster of mental health can be lonely and overwhelming, but we're all in this together and would love for you to join us. Hi, Leon. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Chris. Hey, Hannah. So, Leon, I want to know, how do you mask in your day-to-day life? Um, always. I, I was described yesterday as the trip advisor for mental health facilities. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing I know I can do, I'm a terrible patient because uh, I believe I know a little too much about this system, but I'm a great coach to people who want to get into the system and uh, the language people need to use to get into a system without being too crazy, being scheduled but being unwell enough to access services, when I feel absolutely ethically good to coach people to lie, to get access to services or to get out of services. And what about you, Chris? Um, I think I feel like I'm constantly masking and I don't know what's underneath. I just think I wear different masks depending on the environment, um, what I'm doing, so whether it's work or seeing people socially... Um, or doing this podcast. I feel like I'm just wearing a number of masks and underneath is just churning anxiety about wearing the masks. Do you ever feel like you're ever your truest self? Is that when you're alone, do you reckon? Um, I think I feel that at times when I'm... More when I'm with people, but people I've got like a long-standing kind of deep connection with. Um, Sometimes when I'm with my dog... And when I'm alone, the thing that brings me back to a sense of self briefly is probably listening to music. It just, there's something, I can't explain it. So we're about to listen to this wonderful interview I did with Max. And we're talking about masking and performing wellness and unwellness to kind of achieve a goal and realise who you are as an individual. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. So shall we just get right into it? Let's (laughs) press play. (laughs) So Max, can you tell me when you feel like you're masking the most in your day-to-day life? I feel like I'm perpetually masking, probably 90% of the time. Um, But I think particularly in regard to accessing services or trying to support or seek support, I don't know, I've had a fair bit of shame after some interactions with service providers because I feel like you have to go in with a wounded bird of like, oh, please help me, my life's pathetic. But then you have to be like acutely aware of your like flaws and be able to articulate them, like kind of turning up and being like, I need help. They're like, yeah, with what? (laughs) And you're like, I don't know, everything feels fucked. I don't know what's going on. And they're like, well, the answers are all within you. And you're like, great. So you kind of have to come in with a bit of a brief ready on like, I need X, Y, and Z. But then if you ask too specifically, you seem demanding. I have become like worse as a patient since working in the system. (laughs) 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 Because I think knowing more about the systems and processes can make me a bit more annoyed when you're trying to access them. I can be quite agitated or frustrated in like inpatient units and stuff. I think I have a much lower tolerance for 
how like wide practice is. So it's like you go into one hospital and then they do something completely different or you go into one intake assessment and you get someone who asks a whole range of questions. It's like so hit and miss between and every answer I feel like you get is like, oh, this is just process. And it's like, well, if it's fucking process, then why is not everyone doing that? Like, I feel like if you're going to lean on the process thing, at least then do the same thing where I feel like it can be a bit of a cover for this is how I do things or this is how we do it here. But I want to know, like, when you were performing unwellness or Mm. was that kind of traumatic or did it kind of, yeah, I just want to know how that felt for you personally when you're performing in that way. I feel like I've always done a lot of thinking and I feel like at times I was kind of punished for being articulate. A lot of the response had been like, well, you seem okay. It was almost like you had to be out of your mind Mm. to get support. And then even then what you do get, then you're out of your mind and you can't make any decisions about it. So I think also I found early in my life that kind of talking about feelings like feeling overwhelmed or disconnected or isolated or uncomfortable didn't seem to get the same reaction as telling people you wanted to die like there was I remember my first memory of kind of I'd thought about it but it was kind of like the first point where I was like said it out loud to someone and I remember feeling blown away with what happened like it was almost like someone hit this big alarming button on the wall (laughs) and everyone was like oh wow we didn't know that and then it's like everyone's moving they're like it was kind of like that to me at that time felt like that was the phrase that connected me to getting out of my house essentially which I now understand I wanted I needed to get out of my house and going to hospital or somewhere else was the only kind of way to do that the language became the key or the ticket to the supports rather than the supports being given on a basis of where you're at. It was all kind of like if you say a certain thing, then we have to do something else so you learn how the cogs kind of turn. And I suppose you talked about kind of like the perfect kind of way to perform. Mm. How did you eventually find that perfect zone to kind of get to where you want to be as a person? kind of work the system I had to work in it Mm. first because there was only so much I think from accessing it and I'd been in the kind of public mental health system in like an acute kind of youth team when I was 16 and then I kind of learnt from those interactions but once I worked within the system I was able to more look at what the fuel is that gets action and like the risk that they're willing to hold and the risk that they're not and then finding that which was kind of really difficult to understand like as a peer worker at the time in the system because I was like oh god this would have been fucking helpful to know but then it is it's kind of like I struggled with it because it felt inherently manipulative Um, it didn't feel kind of genuine and authentic and I think seeking support from a place that is almost it felt like begging is the word that I associate with it which is not empowering or it's not like you're coming into it as a whole person that needs assistance you're coming into it you've got to kind of present yourself as a broken person that they can put back together in the ways that they offer to put people back together so I think particularly in the public system I mainly just utilized it 
under like extreme kind of crisis where I needed to physically be removed from my environment, like some kind of, it was more the change and the overnight removal of responsibility, like being in an inpatient unit um, in a psych ward in particular is a great reason not to go to work. So (laughs) (laughs) it was kind of like I found, it was almost like I didn't have the um, awareness and I also didn't really have people around me that was supporting me to understand the patterns and the rationale, but it was kind of like going to hospital is the only thing that works, which I hear from a lot of people. And for me over time, I'd found that it worked because it was a change of environment um, but also it was a way to respond to overwhelm by eliminating all responsibilities for a short period of time. Um, so that was how it was useful to me. And then outside of that, um, I don't tend to engage all too much with the public system. Um, I just ha- have found more benefit in having kind of a therapist and having people around me or my social group that understand Um, and just kind of not like a group or anything but just kind of knowing which of my friends and the people I know get that part of me and they get all of the other parts of the system and the experience so it just you can do a lot more meaningful stuff in such a shorter amount of time with that because you don't have to give all the context but I do believe the system can change Um, and I think working in the sector I believe more in making a difference in with an individual or at a local systemic change can be really difficult. But I think it traces back to that initially in asylums and all of psychiatry has placed us as crazy people that have no idea how to help ourselves. And then now we're sort of like people are wanting to work in a different way. We're doing a lot of bias and belief change around what mental illness is what mental health is what trauma does but i feel like we have to remember that through its origins it began as us almost like not having any thought anything we thought was just a mumbled mess so i feel like we're in a weird zone where there's still that undercurrent in the system about if you've got a mental illness you're not the best person to speak to what you're experiencing or you're not going to know the way out you can't really hold the person as the expert and still hold a lot of the traditional and historic beliefs that are in psychiatry that you've got a broken brain or your thinking's disordered or you're delusional because um, that almost like strikes your ability to have any input. So I think that's what's in between kind of two of the zones, the drive that we need to, that people know themselves best wherever they're at um, and their best place to make decisions and give advice about what would work. But then also we're battling kind of the longitudinal white kind of colonised views of distress. That's why I think it feels as complicated as it is because mm. <laughs> there's a lot on either side of it. I suppose as well, like, do you have to perform wellness as mm. well? Mm. Can you tell me what performing wellness was like for you? Oh, going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so much of it is tied to um, working and being able to contribute to society in a job-based way. For me, um, wellness for a period of time was the removal or the absence of symptoms, which was really difficult. Or say like the wellbeing markers were uh, me being able to distract myself from difficult feelings and experiences and distracting yourself um, or eliminating the feeling was the goal, which obviously didn't work. Um, (laughs) Just kind of get crazier from my experience. (laughs) Like I always laugh that like every kind of wellbeing plan I've ever written on it has doing yoga on it 
and I've done it for probably three hours in total my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like part of that is like, I know this will read well on here. Um, I feel like (laughs) so much of it is about proving wellness in the frames of kind of the, the helpers or the supporters. So, yeah, I think for a long time I was just at war with my own feelings and felt like they were just annoying broken parts of me that were disrupting my life and if I'd figured out how to get rid of them then everything would be fine and then I did a lot of things that led to a lot of kind of emotional numbing and I was like oh this isn't fine this is devoid of anything (laughs) like I think it was like more probably it went from like um, overwhelming kind of despair and pain to just apathy and they're both fucked in different ways. And I actually think apathy is way more dangerous. Way more. Because <laughs> I don't care about anything. <laughs> so how did you kind of reconcile those feelings in your, in your mind then to kind of function in a way that was meaningful to you? It's taken a long time, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like I've just been chaos on legs floating around my life for a long time. But I think, so I think I'd viewed them as as being too sensitive or as them being annoying or as I kind of had built that relationship with them. It was almost like I needed permission that things were okay to feel that it was the correct one. Like if I felt angry or betrayed by something, I needed to ask someone else if that was a reasonable thing to feel. And then if they were like, yes, it was almost like there was a permission that help is the sunny side of control. That kind of place of somebody who's like ostensibly there to help you, but then seeing you as kind of less than Mm. can be like quite damaging and Mm. isolating. Yeah. How did you kind of, how did you deal with that emotionally? I think initially it just shattered my identity and my self-esteem because I thought I was just a fucking hopeless loser that had no idea what I was doing and that I didn't know how to control myself and that everything was really broken. So I think initially it was like I accepted the rhetoric of you've got a disorder, your feelings misfire on things that don't make sense, you have like breakdowns, that are because of chemical imbalance, that kind of stuff. And then I was like, I aligned with that initially because I was like, that reasoning means that it's not my fault, which was the first part that I aligned to the diagnosis. And I went into like being like, yep, that's me. Makes sense. It was kind of the first removal of me just being a weak-willed piece of shit. Which sounds gruesome, but I think it's like that was it was kind of like I am this way because my character is bad or I'm a bad Mm. person or I don't try hard enough or I don't do the right things where it was this was the first thing that was like actually you have a disorder that's separate to you. So I was like, okay, that helped for a while. And then I think that viewpoint just led me to not feeling like there was anything I could do which I think is the danger of that, where it's like, well, I've got a disorder and I'm taking the medication and I'm still a fuckwit, so what's going on? (laughs) I was like, this isn't what you've all promised. You've said, we've got the answers, we've got the ticket and I'm taking, I'm medicated up to my fucking eyeballs and I'm still, like, feeling like shit, so what's going on? And then I feel like I've always been quite critical of systems, but I was like, yeah, I feel like you guys... (laughs) 
just don't seem to have the answers. Like I wasn't getting better. I wasn't making improvements. I didn't have any more understanding of what was going on. And I think over time, it was a lot of the lived experience movement and having access to different stories and frames of people who were doing incredible things that had sort of said, actually, like, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, It's that this is what happens when you have experiences of X, Y, and Z. And it was just the meaning making I really attached to. It was like, that makes perfect sense that when shit things happen to you, you feel like shit. (laughs) That checks out. Outside of the kind of medical system, would you say you're on the other Mm. side of it? Or do you still feel like you're having to mask now or perform in a certain way now? I feel like yes, mainly because I think a lot of it's more social on like what's acceptable, um, which is something I always come back to. Like it's seen as really unprofessional to cry in your workplace, Mm. which I think is absurd. Like it's natural when you experience things to be able to cry. And I, I feel like I've had so many experiences of having difficult work things and then coming home and trying to cry to my partner about it. It's kind of like the, the benefit of being in a, in a workplace and being able to have vulnerable conversations about impact and doing that work while you're at work, I think is really important. But I think it's like, it was quite hard, but I had to eliminate a lot of the clinical points for recovery and a lot of like capitalist points of recovery, which is like that you work full time, which working eight hours a day, five days a week is not a natural human thing anyway. Like I, <laughs> that should not be like the marker of whether you're okay or not. Cause like as a society as a whole, I feel like being vulnerable is like kind of like looked down upon or like being a sensitive person is like kind of almost kind of shameful. Mm. Do you think we need to normalise those aspects of being human, being sensitive, being vulnerable? My first answer, I think, is a lot around kind of patriarchy and whiteness because a lot of... um, what is seen as really healthy emotional regulation is devoid of emotion. So it's like they're not there, um, which is numbing. (laughs) So I think it's like people can... I also think people who have silenced their feelings for a really long time find it difficult being around people that are expressing them because they're actively trying to avoid triggering them. So if you're openly upset or if you're crying, if you're like, wow, this is really heartbreaking, this is terrible, and they're like, ugh... (laughs) Because it starts to activate a mutual feeling and they don't want to be around people that are going to elicit that because they see their feelings as getting in the way of what they need to do, which I relate to. I've often talked to a lot of, like, cis white men about this that feel like, you know, they talk about the feminisation of emotions as well, like even, like, hysteria and being really sensitive or you're emotional, you're letting your emotions decide is, like, coming from a place of them feeling like they're logical, which is often just cognitive. But, like, any good decision should be made with logic and feelings in tow. And anyone who's ever been around a really great leader is someone who can take their emotions and their logic and work with them together. I feel like I'm talking very workplace-like, but I think that's where most people spend most of their day. Mm. And it's often when I think people mask the most because you don't have as much control. Like, you have to work with people that have lots of different beliefs and approaches. So, I think... Part of that is we need to start a war on the emotional kind of separation or suppression in everyone, which is not easy. 
(laughs) (laughs) If someone is crying, that's a natural expression of a feeling. Like they're not, that's not like wild or unprofessional. Like people do cry and I know people who boast about like not having cried in 10 years. I'm like, that is fucking terrifying. You should be crying once in 10 years. Like that is terrifying. (laughs) Very scary. In terms of emotions, so like a feeling comes up and then you can identify it. And once you kind of identify it, it then gets a bit bigger, which can be scary, and then it kind of dissolves. So I'd found through my um, therapy that what happens is the feeling presents itself and then you go into fear of like, no, 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 no. (laughs) And then it stunts the fear at that point and then you store it in your body. So I feel like a big part of how we can kind of foster that with other people is if there is a feeling there, allowing people to fully feel it and not feel like they're going to fall apart. And, like, they might, but I think just saying, like, it makes sense that, like, that is actually really sad and it makes sense that you're upset about it. Like, absolutely. Or if you feel angry about that and you've something's happened that you think is unjust, like, you're allowed to be angry about that, you're allowed to be upset about that. And I think the flip side of that is allowing people to feel and experience their emotions but not using them as an excuse for what people do with them um, which I think is a really a nuance that we need more in the mental health sphere around like um, the kind of like uh, what's it like the, the forensic view of it like not guilty by insanity and things like that I feel like it can often be like oh if someone's unwell then they're just being unwell and it's almost like we don't hold them to the same behavioural standards which I think actually work to the systems that oppress us because once that happens it's then oh they are like so crazy they don't know what they're doing where I think that's a nuance that in a lot of conversations if someone is really angry you're allowed to be really angry and you're allowed to experience your anger but what you're not allowed to do is go and punish someone else or you're not allowed to go and hit someone else or it's not okay to then go and yell at someone else so I think once we can talk about being able to feel the feelings we can then also have really powerful discussions around kind of like behavior and what we do with them that isn't just like you're allowed to be angry so whatever you do when you're angry is okay I just have one more question so finally like I suppose getting back to the medical system or whatever Mm. what would you what changes would you like to see, to make it better for other people, having been through it? Well, I think multiple things, but I think the belief that I'm landed on of late is that we're we're never going to be able to get um, equity and equality working alongside our oppressors, which is a lot of that... It's a whole other thing about the performance of wellness when you're a peer worker or a lived experience advocate as well (laughs) because you're representing all the crazies and you can't go in there acting a fool. They don't like that. (laughs) But I think we're trying to kind of build within the system things that, one, we don't really have the power to enforce, but also the system is how it is and it was built to be really difficult to change and it was built with fundamental kind of errors in what illness is, what wellness is and I do think a lot of the system change stuff that we're attempting to do 
is often band-aiding a bullet hole and it's kind of like you see a new incredible innovation or something great that pops up and then it can't really survive or it doesn't get funding or it's too controversial like you have to get funding and for it to be sustainable and to implement it you need the money the support and the governance of the system so there's only so much radical stuff you can do within it and I think I'm leaning more towards people building things separate to the system in a way like how AA and a lot of the 12-step models in community have thrived over years, I think is a lot of them kind of holding ownership of it and not allowing outside forces to infiltrate it. And I love how they've protected that. Um, so I'm leaning more towards a lot of the change needing to come from um, people with lived experience or people who might come into contact with the mental health system looking at creative ways that either people are currently or ways that it could be built outside of the system. So that's kind of my overall answer of that. But I think I've worked in the system now for like... I think over 10 years in a lot of different elements of different services. And I think, I don't think it's a lack of optimism because I actually am quite optimistic about what we can do. I think what's changed is I don't think the system is ready to implement the things that are needed. And I think they'd have to let go of a lot of beliefs, processes and like convictions about what safety is, what risk is, what people need, what people are, what feelings are. And I think that, is a long process that's really tied into people's relationship with themselves and also like money <laughs> so i think the reason why systems kind of change has for me felt so overwhelming and so frustrating is because it is it's massive and it's got a lot of complexities i think focusing really locally has helped me in my career so looking at like say um, like our team and the people that we support instead of trying to funnel all this energy like changing like higher stuff looking at how can we change this to create a little bubble that can be free from a lot of that which I found was a lot more effective to work in um, than kind of pushing shit uphill and I feel like a lot of advocacy is quite um I found it quite humiliating and quite dehumanising because it's a bit like you get a seat at the table but then people don't expect you to be a professional. They don't expect you to understand things. They don't expect you to have a, like a decent take on a system. Mm. It's kind of like you're only allowed to speak in your own story, in like purposeful storytelling all the time. <laughs> like you couldn't be a project officer. You couldn't be a manager. You couldn't be like a director of operations. Um, but... Yeah, I think not giving up in the sense of trying to make a bubble where you work or in your kind of community and trying to do what you can to change kind of more local processes. I feel like that sounds kind of vague, but often you can influence a lot more in your kind of equal area rather than spending all of your energy trying to influence people that have a lot of power. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. It's a Mindfield is produced by Chris Jager, Hannah Achelis, and Leon Fernandez. Audio by Lockie Hilda. We're kindly supported by the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales. 
you can reach out to us at iamf.org.au. And remember, we're all in this together.